Good evening, everyone. So we're taking up a theme for the next few weeks, and that theme is rest. Rest. We had a practice period in a retreat recently that required a lot of focus and energy and endurance from us all. And, uh, you know, our 16 months of living in a pandemic have required a lot of energy. We don't know what to do. We don't know what's coming. So let's rest. We usually think of rest as, um, as an either-or proposition. I'm either active or I'm inactive. But tonight I want to talk about rest as something different. I want to talk about rest as an infinitely variable middle ground between doing and non-doing. Infinitely variable. You know, so can we actually rest while we're active? Not just stop being active, but can we actually rest while we're active? Or more, more to the point of tonight's theme, uh, the question is this, can we rest deeply while practicing diligently? Can we rest deeply while practicing diligently? I'm aware that um, several of us have really been working hard to support the Sangha recently particularly through this practice period and this retreat. And I think that some of the folks are at risk of burning out. And if they burn out, we all suffer. We all suffer. This is not their problem. It's our problem. You know, and other people in the Sangha are, are um, at risk of burning out from other reasons, maybe work, maybe caregiving maybe health concerns, maybe fighting injustice or oppression or environmental degradation, on and on and on. So this, this question is important to us all. And our Sangha depends on us finding rest in the middle of things because we can't just simply stop. We have to find out how to rest while we're doing. So as you can imagine, the the need for rest has been addressed in Zen teachings from the very beginning. Because we're not, we're not the only culture that does a lot of stuff. You know, this has been a human condition. And so Zen has addressed this. Um, Joshu, one of my favorite teachers in ninth century China, uh, he would greet everyone who came to his monastery with the same phrase. He would ask, have you been here before? And the and the new person would say, oh, no, never been here before. Ah, then go drink your tea. And another person would show up who had been there for a long time, and he'd ask the same question. So have you been here before? Oh, yes, I, I'm, I've been here for years. You know that. Ah, then go drink your tea. And, and one of the senior monks one time uh, challenged Joshu on this. He said, well, you know, Joshu, a teacher should teach appropriately to where the student is, and you tell everyone to go drink their tea. And what was Joshua's response to the student? Ah, go drink your tea. <laughs> go rest. Go rest. And our own teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, he gives the same teaching, but in an even more direct way. 
So he is famous for having given all these these Dharma talks in front of all these people, hundreds of people. And what does he do in the middle of his Dharma talk? He stops and he drinks his tea. 800,000 people all sitting there and Tai drinks his tea. And he created a whole practice form around this kind of resting. We rest while we sit, we rest while we walk, we have lazy days, we practice deep relaxation, we get together, we sing songs, we have um, be-ins, we do all these things to rest. So luckily, it's, this is not foreign to our Zen practice. And I love this word rest because it's a very Zen word. It's very paradoxical, just like Zen loves to be. So rest is a verb that tells us to do non-doing. Do non-doing. You, you recognize this? You know, there's a famous Zen phrase that says, think non-thinking. So rest is just this Zen word that tells us to do non-doing. The word rest points us to two things. It points us to the act of creating space, the verb, and it's a noun that points to the space that is created. So it's this paradoxical word, really lovely, lovely. And I think it also resonates with a, another Zen teaching on emptiness. Uh, an empty, the teaching on emptiness is that emptiness is always empty of something. And rest is the same thing. Rest is always resting from something. And the, the famous way that this emptiness is taught is uh, a, a glass. Well, this glass is half empty. But what's it empty of? It's half empty of water. But it's also half full of air. So emptiness is always empty of something. And rest is the same way. Rest is rest from something. And what is that? It's rest from busyness. But true rest is full of our true nature. So rest is empty of busyness, but full of our true, true nature. Uh, being a musician, I like to think of rest in the context of music. So, you know, there's music notes, and then there are music rests. The, and the notes denote the sound, and the rest denotes the absence of sound. And they work together. You know, if you have just a rest, it's a, it's a sort of a void. And if you have just notes, it's a cacophony. So the rests and the notes work together. You'll find that in really effective music, there will be sound punctuated by silence that gives context to the sound, gives importance to some parts, like in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Dun, 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 rest. Dun, 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 rest. It wouldn't be the same if it was just dun 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 dun. It it wouldn't be the same. It needs the rest to give the impact of the sound. 
So rest is built into our practice forms. It might not seem like it at first, but it is built into our practice forms. And our practice forms are the containers that hold our rest. They're like, our practice forms are like the music notes that hold, the, that have the rest between them. Our practice forms are like that. Our practice forms are like the sound that points to the space, the emptiness. So the forms help us drop all sorts of things, rest from all sorts of things. Our forms help us rest from thinking, from evaluating, from planning, from ruminating, from greed, from resistance, and on and on and on and on. Without the forms, it's very hard to do that. We are human beings with active, active minds. And so the form is designed to work with that activity and give it an opportunity to rest. I think it's just exhausting to be a separate self who's always striving for more and always fleeing pain and always avoiding inconvenient truths. This is exhausting. So we take refuge in our practice forms. And we take rest right within our practice forms. So for example, we let go of wasteful busyness and we place our left foot onto the cool wooden floor. We let go of our wasteful busyness and we listen to the sound of the bell all the way through. We let go of our wasteful busyness and we join our palms together and we bow. It's so lovely to have those practice forms that help us find rest right in the middle of activity. I, I've noticed that I and I think many others have a kind of a, re, a re, evolving relationship to our practice forms. Uh, and, and I just want to speak about that a little bit because we're all in different places in our practice. And so the practice forms mean different things to us and function in different ways. So I just want to speak a little bit about what those stages are. There's four stages that I want to talk about. The first one is the stage of novelty. Now this is what happens when we first encounter the practice forms. And oftentimes they feel pretty strange, pretty weird. What are these people doing bowing all the time? Why do they walk around like that in a, in a line, one after the other? What, what is, what's going on here? So in this first stage with the novelty of the practice forms, we spend an awful lot of effort deciding what we like and what we don't like. Yeah, I really like the sitting, uh, walking, nah, that's kind of, mm, that looks kind of hokey, it's sort of embarrassing to do that. I don't think I want to be seen doing that. Uh, you know, we might really enjoy hearing the sound of the bell, but bowing, huh? 
wait a minute, I don't, you're not going to get me to do that. So it takes a lot of energy away from us because we're looking at these practice forms and going, mm, no, not good. Oh, great. I like that. Not good. I don't know. The other thing in this novelty stage, I think, is that we spend an awful lot of our effort uh, figuring out how to do it correctly because we, we don't want to be embarrassed and we want to feel competent. Of course, humans always want to feel competent. And um, so we, we put a lot of, of um, work into the forms and we turn them into more busyness. You know, they're, they're, there's something to, to learn and, and practice and, and show off maybe a little bit. So that's that's the the novelty stage of them, and you know also in the novelty stage, one of the things that I that I really fell in love with the practice forms right away, and so they were novel and new, and, and they kind of represented something really neat to me. So I I loved them in that way, but still um, they were novel. Okay, so what's the second stage? Second stage is the stage of embracing the practice forms. So after some time. You know, of, of, of looking at these things as, as something novel, we may begin to embrace them. We may begin. Some people never do and, and maybe leave practice because it just doesn't make sense to them. But others of us, we really embrace them. And the practice forms at this point start to become very comfortable, even habitual. You know, we, we actually do know what to do here. And, uh, and we get really good at it. We feel competent. Yeah, I got this. We start to we start to have this idea that we really know how it should be done. This is how it should be done, and I'm going to do it this way. Um, and you know, the the shadow side of that is we begin to be a little bit judgmental towards uh, ourselves and others who aren't doing them correctly. Yeah, so we become the form police. So we look around the room and go, oh, wait a minute, no, no they're not walking right. So. Uh, <clears throat> But this is that stage of really embracing them. They start to become very, very meaningful to us at, the, at this stage of, of working with them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so novel, then we embrace. And then the third stage is we are being embraced by the forms. They start to embrace us. So whereas at earlier stages with the practice forms, we, we saw that those practice forms as a place to battle our ego, or our small self to kind of rein ourselves in, um, you know, by sitting on the cushion and making sure I don't move, or making sure I, I, I do this just right. Now, the forms begin to cultivate in us a sense of our deepest self. They embrace us. You know, before, when we placed our palms together, we might have done it with a certain compulsion because this is what the whole song is doing and I, I, I should do this too. But now we put our palms together with compassion. We say, together with all beings, the Buddha in me recognizes the Buddha in you. Whereas before we might have sat with a still body because it was um, enforced, now we do it because it's kind. We say to our body as we sit in stillness, Oh, hello, my body. I know that you're a little agitated today, but let's sit together quietly and see what happens. 
Mm. Not forcing it anymore, but being embraced by it, getting energy from it. And so maybe when we're following our breath, we do it not to calm our suffering, but to live in freedom. You know, we can take this breath. Oh, I'm free. Absolutely free. At this stage of being embraced by the practice forms, the practice forms are really about cultivating our good seeds. They're helping us to blossom. And they're also reminding us very kindly to invite the not so good seeds to go to go to rest, go to sleep, go back down. So in this stage of being embraced by the practice forms, it's it's joy that we bring to the forms. They they hold us. They show us our depth. So the fourth stage is the practice forms expressing awakened mind. You know, when at this stage, sitting is just sitting. No sitter. Walking is just walking. No one who walks. Sweeping is just sweeping. Broom. Bowing, it's just bowing. No one bowing and no one being bowed to, just bowing. There's no one doing these forms. There's no one resisting these forms. It's just simply interbeing, expressing itself with a bow, expressing itself with a chant, expressing itself with a right foot on the cold wooden floor. At this stage, the forms are just an expression of our true self. Just true self, this is how true self lives. And, and we don't stop sitting when we wake up. We don't stop practicing the forms when we wake up. You know, because as Suzuki Roshi said, you know, you're, you're perfect as you are, but you could use a little work. You know, there's a there's a recognition here that that the forms both express our awakened self and they are a kind retraining and refining of our ego self. Both go together because as human beings, both are true of us. So we're going to sit in the form for both of those, both to express awakening and to refine that part of us that is always needing more refining. So forms are, you know, both the music we express with our life and they're the scales we practice to make that expression possible. You know, that both are necessary. I remember hearing a story about um, Ray Brown, the great bassist, jazz bassist, and he every day practices scales every day so that when he got up to play and improvise with others, 
he had the facility to simply let go and let it happen. And that's what practice forms are at this stage. They are both the performance and the training, same time. So this is why Joshu, so many centuries ago, could tell every visitor to his monastery, go drink your tea. Because no matter what stage of practice they were at, drinking tea was the most appropriate act. And tea could be a novelty for the new person. It could be something to embrace. It could be something to be embraced by, or it could be an expression of awakened mind. Go drink your tea. Practice form for everyone. So why have I spent so much time talking about practice forms? I thought we were talking about rest. So let's come back to resting within the practice forms. So what does that mean to say that we rest in the middle of practice forms? So what I mean is that our practice container is firm on the outside and soft in the middle. Firm on the outside and soft in the middle. Our practice forms hold us firmly so our hearts can soften. If we're not firmly held by the practice form, it's very hard for us to soften inside. There's a safety there. Um, so we practice a particular kind of Zen form, and it's not what every Zen practitioner practices. You know, Zap Japanese Zen took this hard form, soft interior to a, a much more extreme than our Vietnamese form. In Japanese Zen, Rinzai and Soto Zen, forms are very rigid. Um, and they're that way for a good reason, because our, our wild, untamed ego is the primary cause of our suffering. And it's the biggest barrier to seeing that we're already a Buddha. So in, in the Japanese culture, and consequently the Japanese forms, the, they became very tightly enforced. You know, when you sit, for instance, you sit and you do not move for the period. There's a, a famous story uh, out of the uh, San Francisco Zen Center where in the early years when Suzuki Roshi was teaching there, um, he would sometimes get the, get the sitting started and then would leave the zendo. And one day he did that and he went to his office and he fell asleep. And he stayed asleep for several hours. And the Sangha sat there and did not move that entire time until he woke up and he came back in and he invited the bell. That's the, that's the tight firmness of the form in, in Japanese Zen. Um, you know, and there's, there's a, a in, in most Japanese Zen uh, practice centers, there is a symbol of Manjushri's sword. You know, Manjushri is the bodhisattva that cuts straight to the heart of things. And it's, it's the, it's the um, firm bodhisattva energy. And so there is a stick that sits on the altar that is used if someone requests it 
to come and smack like Manjushri's sword to wake them up. So our forms aren't quite so tight. You know, we, we uh, come from a Vietnamese Zen that is reflective of the Vietnamese culture, which is a, a gentler culture than the, the Japanese culture is more martial. Um, but the spirit is the same. The spirit is the same. We too hold the form firmly so that our hearts can soften. You know, and I think maybe even our style of Zen might be more challenging than the Japanese style because we can't rely on the Sangha to help us to hold the form in the same way that they can in Rinzai or Soto Zen. You know, the Sangha is all sitting without moving. And when they're all doing it, it makes it a lot easier for us to do it. So here I am fidgeting because there's no one to hold me from fidgeting, right? Yeah. So our challenge is to embrace the form just firmly enough in every moment. Just firmly enough. Not so firmly that it becomes a rigid form of, of self-denial, but not so loosely that it fails to transform us. This is a challenge. This is really a challenge. But I think the message that our style offers is to say to us, you, you are already a Buddha. Use your wisdom to find your awakening. So when you look at your body, for instance, on the cushion, you as a Buddha get to decide this urge to move, is this an urge that says, care for me, body, care for me. I'm hurting. I need care now. And so you move. Or is it, uh, I'm bored. I'm just going to shift position here because this, this, I want to do something else. You know, you, your Buddha nature gets to decide that. Well, this is, this is a challenge. This is a challenge. All right. So the last thing I'd really like to talk about tonight is uh, how do we apply this to just one of our practice forms? And that's sitting. We could talk about different ones. Um, and we will in two weeks. I'd like to talk about other forms as well when we take up this subject again. But tonight I want to talk about what does it look like to put this into practice with our sitting form? What does it look like to rest right in the middle of activity? Activity being sitting. What does it look like to do non-doing? So let's start before we sit down. When we are at our cushion or our chair, before we have sat down. So what do we do? We bring our palms together. Together with all beings, I bow. And we bow to our cushion or our chair. We express our gratitude for this seat of awakening, this spiritual friend. You know, my cushion, I've had this cushion for many years. It's upheld me for a long, long time. This is a deep friend 
We've done a lot together here. I'm grateful to this cushion. And so before I sit down, come back to myself, I bring my palms together and I bow to my cushion. And then before I sit down, I turn 180 degrees and I do the same to the Sangha. I bring my palms together with all beings. I bow with gratitude to those who make this practice possible. All of you. You know, have you ever tried to sit by yourself? I'm sure you have. It's hard sometimes, isn't it? It's really hard. Yeah, so we bow to the Sangha. To all those who make this possible. And then before we sit down, we we reach down to our cushion. We might kneel in front of our cushion or our chair and we prepare our cushion. We fluff it. We get it ready. We prepare it. We beautify it. And then we take our seat. And then as we take our seat, we notice each movement that we make. We notice how we lower ourselves down. We notice where the gravity is holding us. We notice the new parts of our body that begin to touch the floor. And we're grateful for all of these, this body's capabilities and all of its weaknesses. We bring all that to our cushion. But we notice every single motion that we make. Now we're on our cushion. What do we do? Well, the first thing we do is we adjust our posture. We align our bones so that they work with gravity. Not leaning too far forward, not leaning too far backward, not too much to one side or the other. And then we find that we might need to adjust our head so it sits on top of our shoulders in alignment with gravity. In each part of our body, we address that way, adjusting our posture. Dogen even suggests we pay attention to our tongue, that we put our tongue on the roof of our mouth and hold it just so. There's a lot to your body. There's a lot to adjust. There's a lot to notice. So the invitation here is to notice what needs noticing. Trust your Buddha nature. Trust your wisdom to point it out to you. So after we've adjusted our posture and our body, we're now ready to adjust our awareness. We may have come into sitting uh, from a busy day with lots on our mind. So our awareness needs some adjusting. We bring our body, our heart, and our mind to a single point and we begin to sit. So now that we're sitting in a single pointed way, we get to begin to adjust our effort. 
just our effort. Not too much, not too little. We don't have to grit down and make our sitting tense. And we don't have to be so loose that we just float around. We adjust our effort. Not too much, not too little. So now we're sitting with an adjusted posture, an adjusted awareness, an adjusted effort. And if we're lucky, that lasts about five seconds. <laughs> so we get to do it again, right? Our attention will wane, so we come back. We readjust our posture. We readjust our awareness. We readjust our effort. And we do this again and again and again. So sitting like this creates the conditions for deep rest. We've created the container of our sitting form. And we've created a container that is just as firm as it needs to be. Not too firm, not too soft. And when we do that, deep rest is possible. Now, while we're resting, this does not mean that nothing difficult comes to visit. You know, it, things, difficult things come to visit because we are resting because we have created the conditions that make it possible for us to see them. So when something difficult comes to visit us while we're sitting, it doesn't mean something is wrong. It means something is right. It means we have created this container and now things like ruminations, uh, difficult emotions, sensations in our body, they start to find their way to be seen. They've been there all along, actually, but we haven't created this form of resting for us to be able to see them. So here they are. Here they are. So if we continue to do this, this process of adjusting our posture, adjusting our awareness, and adjusting our effort, even when these things come up, these difficult things, we can be with them. And given enough time, enough time in this sitting, enough time in this practice period, enough time in this life, given enough time, these troubling seeds will begin to exhaust themselves because we're not feeding them. We're simply being a kind witness. They will exhaust themselves. And when they do, then the clear ground of rest will become visible. The clear ground of our true nature will be visible. So I think I've said enough. I think I should give it a rest. Yeah. But what I, what I hope that you may take away from this is that 
Rest is doing non-doing, and it requires a form to truly rest, a form that is firm enough so that your true self can be there and rest in a way that's healing and deeply nourishing. So thank you all for listening. I appreciate it so much.